Let's pray. Heavenly Father, open our ears that we may hear, open our eyes that we may see, and open our hearts that we may believe. In the name of Christ, we pray. Amen. You may be seated. So the um, passage that we're looking at today is Ephesians 4, verses 1 to 16. We're continuing our series through the book of Ephesians. And Ephesians 4, 1 to 16 is the beginning of the second act in the book of Ephesians. You can actually split up Ephesians into two parts, Ephesians 1 to 3, and then Ephesians 4 to 6. Uh, Ephesians 1 to 3 is seen as the um, section on doctrine, on right belief. And then 4 to 6 is the section on uh, right behavior, orthopraxy, in contrast to orthodoxy. Now, it could be understood, and we shouldn't take it this way, as seeing that, oh, Ephesians 1 to 3 is dealing with what God has done or what God does for his people. And then 4 to 6 has to deal with what we must now do as though they are two separate matters. Um, It's actually more accurate to see the entire book as chapter 1 to 3 dealing with what God has done for us and then four to six as what God does through us. And so when we come to this section, the beginning section of act two of the Christian life, where does Paul start when he wants to deal with the Christian life? He starts with Christian unity. <laughs> now it doesn't take much convincing to uh, prove that we live in a divided age and that Christian unity and the topic of unity is deeply important for us. In the midst of preparing for this sermon this week, I glanced through the LA Times front page a couple of times. And you know what the most consistent theme was throughout this entire week? Division. At some point, somewhere, if it's not division in the state Senate over the recall election, it's division over the pandemic and how school districts have to wrestle with mask mandates. There's division in uh, the federal government about how um, the removal from Afghanistan was handled. There's division over social justice. There's division everywhere, even when it comes to managing wildfires, right? (laughs) We have divided opinions on how that's to be managed. But we might think in seeing that, okay, yes, division exists and unity is a vitally important topic to be discussed. We might think, oh, I already know where this is going to go, right? It's going to be a quick sort of statement about how we're divided, we need to get along, and let's sing Kumbaya uh, at, at Crystal Cove uh, this evening, watching the sunset. But Paul is actually going to do a lot more than simply say, we need to get along. I mean, and he does hint to that. He's going to tie the matter of Christian unity uh, to another vitally important issue, and that is our personal maturity and our Christian growth. Paul's vision of Christian unity is inseparable from his vision of your maturity and your growth. He's saying if you really want to understand what it takes to experience true personal transformation, we've got to talk about Christian unity. And if you want to talk about Christian unity, we've got to talk about your maturity. They're inseparable and they're connected. So the three things that Paul shows us in this passage are first of all, the unity that we maintain. Secondly, the diversity that it requires. And thirdly, the maturity that it produces the unity we maintain, the diversity it requires, and the maturity it produces. So first of all, the unity we maintain. Verse one, I urge you to live a life worthy of the calling you have received. Paul says this is urgent, that we have to live into the calling that has been given to us. It is not something we've created for ourselves, but because of the grace that God has given to us, chapter one to three, 
we now have to live in accordance with that calling. And in verse 3, he says, what does it look like to live a life worthy of the calling you have received? Verse 3, make every effort to keep the unity of the Spirit through the bond of peace. Keep the unity of the Spirit. Not create it. It already exists. It's a gift given by God. We saw that in Ephesians chapter 2. It is for us to maintain. This actually hints to God's uh, grand story and grand plan for history. Right, in Ephesians chapter 1, we read in verse 9 and 10, it reads this, He made known to us the mystery of his will according to his good pleasure, which he purposed in Christ, to bring into effect when the times reached their fulfillment, to bring, do you know what God wants to bring at the end of all time? Ephesians 1 verse 10, to bring unity to all things in heaven and on earth under Christ. So when Paul says we have to live a life worthy of the calling, he's saying that God's grand plan for the redemption of the entire world is to unite all things in heaven and on earth. And God intends to start right here, Holy Trinity Church, right here in the church. God wants to use the church as a preview of what is to come for the entire globe. Everything on earth, everything in heaven will be united under Christ and he wants to begin with the Christian church. Which means we have to confront our faulty understandings of unity, right? Because I think we tend to think of unity in a couple of ways. Um, we can think of unity as essentially avoiding conflict, right? The goal of unity is just to not be abrasive. I don't know if you uh, remember the 2008 Beijing Olympics, um, the women's 100 meter hurdles. Lolo Jones was a runner for uh, the United States of America and she's in the fourth lane. She's a favorite to win the final of the women's 100 meter hurdles. When the race starts, she's leading the pack as she clears the fourth and fifth hurdle. But by the ninth hurdle, she clips the hurdle and goes from first place to seventh place in an instant. She doesn't even get a medal. I think we can think of Christian unity like that. As long as I clear each hurdle, every Sunday that I come to church, the goal is just to clear the hurdle. As long as I avoid conflict, we're good. But the minute I clip a hurdle, it's game over. It's time for me to move on. Christian unity has been broken. Or we can say, to use a bit of imagination to this race, we can say, oh, you know, I'm not even going to attempt to clear a hurdle. I'm going to keep everyone at arm's distance, right? Because if I don't even approach the hurdle, how can I clip something I don't even touch? I don't even come near to so we keep everyone at arm's distance. We say, I'm only gonna get this close to you because I know what happens when I really get close. I, I've learned my lesson from Lolo Jones. I'm gonna clip the hurdle at some point. And so we avoid everyone, we keep everyone at arm's length. We're also tempted to see uh, Christian unity as, I'm just gonna raise the height or lower the height of the hurdle as low as possible, pursue sameness. The more I overlap with the people around me, the less likelihood that I'm gonna enter conflict. Right, because if the height of the hurdle was really low, how do you clip something that's not even higher than your foot? Right, so we look for sameness, we pursue sameness as though that's going to be the solution to Christian unity. All of those approaches assume that Christian unity is about avoiding conflict. Because the minute conflict arises, unity is broken. But Paul doesn't say that's what Christian unity is. So what is Christian unity? Well, I'm glad you asked. <laughs> Christian unity is the bond that holds different people together. You think of it like marriage. No one assumes or no one even thinks that when two people get married, they are exactly the same person. Of course they're different. And the marriage is going to bear that out. But there is a bond 
a legal bond that ties them together. Or even think of, of papers in a folder. You know, you're working uh, in your office and your manager says, we need to get together these legal documents for a presentation we have to give to a client or something like that. And you take all these desperate pages, all these different pages, one is a cover page, another is a bibliography, the chapter one, chapter five. They're all different pages, but what holds them together? The ring binder, uh, the adhesive, right? They are different, but they're held together by something common. Now, what is that? common glue? What is that common bond that holds Christians together? Paul says in verse 4 to 6 that if we have one body, one spirit, one hope, verse 5, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all. Of course we're all different, but we all are in the same body. We all have the same spirit. We all share the same hope. We all have the same Lord. We all believe in the same faith and we all have received the same baptism because we are all under the same God and Father of all. Uh, we can, <laughs> I think a good example to use when thinking about, about unity is actually uh, quite literally the United States of America, right? The United States of America assume there are different states in America, right? It's not just one, it's not as if the United States of America is the one California state but there's lots of different states. And when those different states come under one federal government, they're united, even though they don't get along. Most of the time, they don't get along. They are united because they share the same government, the same federal government, and we have the same Lord. So yes, we're all different, but we share a common faith. We share a common baptism. We share a common Lord. And so I think it's... Uh, really, you know, ingenious that uh, Paul in verse 2 talks about the virtues because he recognizes that, yes, there are differences and we have a common bond, but because there are differences, yes, there are times where we all have conflict. Remember, unity is not the absence of conflict, so conflicts can exist in unified bodies. So Paul says in verse 2, be completely humble and gentle, be patient, bearing with one another in love, because that's what it will take for us to keep that unity. Maintaining the unity of the spirit means that we need humility, which springs from the re realization of our own dependence on God's grace and the worth of other believers. It means we need gentleness, which issues in consideration of the needs of others. It means that we need patience, which is tolerance of the shortcomings of others. What will be necessary in short is a mutual forbearance that is only possible through the power of love. Unity is not the absence of conflict, but the bond that holds us in spite of our conflict. So that is to say, it's not unity at all costs, but it is unity at great costs. It is unity pursued with humbleness, with gentleness, with patience, bearing with one another in love, as Paul says. Secondly, we see the diversity it requires. So Paul shows us the unity that we maintain but secondly, he shows us the diversity it requires. There's a couple of verses here that Paul, um, that, that we can read that show the diversity that is required for unity. Verse seven, Paul says, but to each one of us, grace has been given as Christ apportioned it. Each one of us has been given grace. Then in verse eight, at the very end of verse eight, we read that Christ, the ascended Christ, gave gifts to his people. And then in the end in verse 16, from him, the whole body, joined and held together by every supporting ligament, grows and builds itself up in love, 
as each, as each part does its work. We've all been given grace and each of us have a part to play. Unity and diversity therefore are not mutually exclusive ideas. It's not unity over here and diversity over there, but actually unity requires diversity. You cannot have unity until you discover diversity. Jesus Christ has created each of us in a unique way with a certain set of gifts in such a way that it, it weaves together with the uniqueness of others so that we can build one another up. In the unity of the church, your individuality, your uniqueness, your giftedness is not just enhanced, but it's actually discovered. You learn more about yourself and what you have to contribute to the life of the church in the midst of the diversity of the church. For what purpose, verse 12, to equip his people for works of service so that the body of Christ may be built up. Verse 13, the beginning of verse 13, until we all reach unity in the faith. The gifts that Christ has given the church, the gifts that Christ has given you, verse 13, is so that we might reach unity in the faith, which means you are an indispensable feature of this call that you are actually part of the grand goal that God has in mind for the universe. That when he wants to start with the church, he also wants to start with you and your gifts that you may bless the church in its pursuit of unity. And so with the church, you might display the goal of unity to the entire world. Now, more specifically, Paul goes into certain gifts. So he starts by saying that grace has been given to each one of you, that each has to do its own work. But then he goes into some specifics. So he says that Christ has given us apostles, prophets, evangelists, and pastor teachers, verse 11. Notice what is consistent about all of those. Apostles, prophets, evangelists, pastor teachers. They're all people. There's other passages in the New Testament where Paul mentions specific gifts. So he talks about prophecy in 1 Corinthians. But in Ephesians he says, I'm not going to talk about prophecy, I'm going to talk about prophets. Christ has given you people as a gift. The uniqueness of each person is a gift to you. So it's not programs that Christ gives you for your personal maturity, although, of course, they are helpful. It's people. It's not seven steps to success. It's people. It's not a platform. It's not money, it's not a diploma, it's not an access to a new vibrant opportunity. It's people. Christ has given you people. Now more specifically as well, for these four offices, uh, offices, apostles, prophets, evangelists, and pastor teachers, there's also something consistent about them as well. One, they are all people, persons, but they are all uh, mediators of revelation of God's word. So the apostles and prophets, the foundations of the church, we see that in Ephesians 2. They are the mediators of God's revelation in the Old and New Testament. And then the evangelists and pastor teachers are proclaimers of God's word. And so what is consistent between all of them is that God intends to give his word to you through people, through his people. Again, God does not have a giant megaphone in the sky his word comes to you through people. There isn't going to be a writing in the clouds. It's God's word to you through people. It's not the movement of the leaves. It's God's word to you through people. 
Do you see why the diversity of the church is required for the unity of the church? That each office, the apostles, prophets, playing different roles, contribute to your maturity and to your growth. So thirdly, we see the maturity that this unity and diversity produces. We've seen the unity we maintain and the diversity it requires of the gifts of God's people given to us. And then thirdly, we see the maturity it produces. Verse 13 to 14, the end of verse 13, attaining to the whole measure of the fullness of Christ, then we will no longer be infants. Paul uses the imagery of a human body, of a human person, to characterize the growth that we will experience in the unity that we pursue in the midst of the diversity of our gifts. And he says that our unity with the diversity of our gifts produces a maturity that moves us from infancy to adulthood. Right, so when he speaks about this infancy, he says that we will no longer be tossed back and forth by the waves blown here and there, by every wind of teaching and by the cunning and craftiness of people and their deceitful schemes. He says that we'll no longer be uh, root, um, rootless, rootless, we'll no longer have instability, we'll no longer have a lack of direction, we'll no longer be susceptible to manipulation and error when we grow up in maturity. We will move from a self-centeredness that characterizes infancy to a other-centeredness that characterizes adulthood, that we will be grounded, stable, rooted, with a clear sense of direction. And when Paul wants to give us a picture of that maturity, what exactly does it look like to be mature in the faith? Um, Paul can think of no better example than Christ himself. And so he says, until we attain the whole measure of the fullness of Christ. Now the listeners would have had uh, as a backdrop uh, Greek philosophic discussions about the ideal ruler, the ideal ruler. And so for example, Aristotle writes to Alexander the Great and says to Alexander the Great, uh, you must be a virtuous person. Virtue is really important to Aristotle. And you know why he says that? He says, the people, your subjects are going to model their lives after you. Isocrates says that the best kind of legislation, the best kind of laws are those laws that mirror the lives of the rulers. Isocrates then says to Democritus, uh, you should model yourself according to the kings and rulers, for theirs is a virtuous life that you have to live into. So when Paul says that we should attain to the whole measure of the fullness of Christ, Paul is saying Christ is the ideal ruler, Christ is the ideal king, and his is the picture of full and complete maturity. And Paul almost says Christ is the true adult of humanity. And if you want to know what adulthood and maturity looks like, the ultimate picture is Jesus Christ himself. I'll conclude with this. How do we begin to walk in that unity? How do we begin to walk in the unity in the midst of the diversity of the gifts that we all contribute to the life of the church as we pursue maturity and Christian growth? Well, look with me in verse 15. It reads, instead, speaking the truth in love, we will grow to become in every respect the mature body of him who is the head, that is Christ. Paul describes Christ as the head of the church. Now he's not just using the imagery of the body and saying Christ is the head, but he's actually talking about Christ as the source of the church. 
So Christ is not just the goal of our Christian maturity. Christ is the source of our Christian maturity. So when we think about what it means to walk in unity, to pursue unity in the midst of our diversity, Paul says Christ is not just the goal, Christ is the source. It was Christ who broke the bonds of division in his body so that we would walk in the bonds of peace. In Christ, we can begin to walk in unity. It was Jesus Christ who gave his blood on the cross that we would receive the grace that we need. So in Christ, we can walk in unity. It was Christ who was torn apart that we might be held together. It is in Christ that we walk in unity. What God has done for us in the work of Jesus Christ on the cross for us and in his resurrection is the very source of what he's doing through us, that we can begin to take each step, look into Christ as both the source of our unity and the goal of our maturity. And so to the degree that we keep before us the work of Christ on the cross for us is the degree that we can begin to walk in unity, acknowledging the differences in the gifts that we bring to the church towards the fullness of the stature of Jesus Christ. Our walking unity is a picture of God's grand goal for history, to unite all things under Christ. And he wants to start right here in the church. Amen. I'm gonna uh, read a prayer from the Book of Common Prayer for Christian unity. So let's pray. O God, the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, our only Savior, the Prince of Peace, give us grace to lay to heart the great dangers we are, we are in by our unhappy divisions. Take away all hatred and prejudice and whatsoever else may hinder us from godly union and concord. That as there is but one body and one spirit and one hope of our calling, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of us all, so we may be all of one heart and of one soul, united in one holy bond of truth and peace, of faith and charity, and may with one mind and one mouth glorify you. Through Jesus Christ our Lord. Amen.